Welcome to I'm So Obsessed, where we talk with actors, artists, and creators about their work, career, and current obsession. I'm your host, Patrick Holland, and today's guest is the actor, writer, director, and producer, Mark Duplass. You know him for roles in The League, The Morning Show, The Mindy Project, and the film Bombshell. He and his brother Jay won Emmy Awards for producing the documentary series Wild Wild Country, and his HBO series Room 104, which he also created with his brother, is in its fourth and final season. The show is an anthology where each episode is a different story told in a different style featuring different actors, but all episodes take place in the exact same generic hotel room. Mark talks in-depth about Room 104, including starring as a former obscure 90s rocker in the first episode of the new season. He discusses working with Dave Baptista on an episode called Avalanche and how Room 104 has rules and limitations which help bolster the show's creativity. He also opens up about his early days as an indie filmmaker and having his films labeled as Mumblecore, as well as his working relationship with his brother Jay. Uh, Mark, I'm just really excited to talk with you. I've been a big fan of your work back from your indie movies to the shows you've done. And I have a ton of questions, but we're trying to get all this in. Um, let's jump into uh, talking about Room 104. And my first question is, why is this the final season? Well, it's a good question. You know, uh, there's a lot of factors involved. The biggest one of which is we're not as big of a hit as Game of Thrones was, To to not to anyone's surprise. Um, and I've been allowed to do this really crazy midnight show where we get to tell whatever kind of stories we want. Um, and uh, they let me do that for four seasons, which is pretty rare these days. Uh, I think, you know, the way we're, the way TV is right now is like, unless you're a hit after the first season, you pretty much get canceled. So uh, HBO gave us a nice long run, which we're appreciative. But, you know, honestly, I can make this show forever. It is, it's, the kinds of stories you can tell are kind of surprisingly limitless considering you're in the same room every time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, I, I was not aware of the show for a long time and I, or I didn't, I thought I knew what it was and I didn't see it for whatever reason. And then I remember seeing, I think it was the third season and I was like, why has no one told me about this show? It's so amazing. And I'm wondering for people who haven't seen the show, how do you describe it? Well, you know, it's a it's an anthology show all set in an average, you know, American motel room. And I think that uh, it has different characters and different stories every night. And in particular, you really never know what genre you're going to get. It might be, you know, kind of just a regular comedy. It might be something surreal. It might be something scary. It might be a drama. Um, and it might be absolutely absurd. And that's part of the fun of the show is spinning the roulette wheel and figuring out what you get only when you show up. Um, but at the core of the show, it's really about how, you know, when you travel or when you go to a motel room or a hotel room, you're always a little bit different than you are at home. You know, maybe you throw something on the floor like you wouldn't normally do, or you let a little side of yourself loose that you normally might not because you're out of your comfort zone. And it's about that paradox and sort of experiencing in a hyperbolic way all the stories of uh, what happens when people really let it go. And a lot of the stories are coming from you and your brother, but you also have other people writing some stories too, right? Yeah, you know, it's a show that my brother and I created, um, but what's really great about this show and has proven to be, I think, kind of important is that, you know, the best episodes come not from me or Jay or Sid or Mel, who are, you know, the more consistent creative producers, but 
but from sort of more of the unheard of voices, whether it's, you know, their first time writing or directing, or maybe sometimes they're actors who have only had bit parts and things or played characters, but haven't had their first leading role. Um, and when we collaborate with them and we support them in their first big venture, um, it creates something not only like really just important for the ecosystem of where we are right now, you know, and in this industry and in society as a whole, but it sort of freshens up what we can do. Um, so it's been a really exciting process for us to sort of discover, like, this is a real proving ground for up and coming talent and for underrepresented voices. It also kind of reminds me of the kind of like maybe like the eighties or nineties where like uh, music videos were kind of like that experimental place or uh, for a while commercials were that there's also like an experimental style for like directors, especially with some of the styles that uh, these episodes get told in. Yeah. I mean, we didn't necessarily model them after that, but I think that there is something about um, shorter form things. They're a little bit cheaper to produce. Uh, people are often willing to take a little bit more of a risk. And in the case of HBO with this, like, they let us do whatever we want. We make it so cheaply for them that we have full creative control. We have full hiring control. And that creates an ethos of, um, of like creative bravery, you know, which is like, well, look, <laughs> it's cheap. We're airing at midnight. Not that many people are watching anyway. We don't have the pressure of Game of Thrones. Let's swing this bat big and wild and see what happens. Yeah, and I want to talk a little bit about season four. I got to see a couple of the episodes, especially the first episode. And stop me if, if I go too far, but uh, the title of the episode is called The Murderer. And you wrote it, you directed it, and you also star in it. Um, and I guess my first question of that episode is, why the keg of Keystone Light? Yeah, you know, they say God is in the details, right? Um, <laughs> I, I, I felt like uh, the lore of this story is that there was a musician in the mid to late 90s who recorded um, a, an EP, self-recorded, and it went sort of viral in the way that only a mid-90s cassette can. Um, and these fanboys have come upon this musician by the name of Graham Husker, who has ostensibly disappeared for the last 20 years. And he's going to come and play these songs for him tonight. And part of his request is he wants a nice hotel room where he can do it, and he wants a keg of Keystone Light. And that to me, that to me is, uh, it's indicative of, of the era, you know, and indicative of a man who is stuck in the past when, you know, uh, I'm, I'm 43 years old now. So you look at the mid to late 90s for me, that's college and, and high school time. And, and that was the beer, that was the beer of choice. It was well-priced. It, it packed a punch. Um, and uh, it, it felt like it was of an era. I say for me, I'm about the same age. It would be ro either Rolling Rock or Ice House. I think. Yeah, um, that's very, very true. Yeah. Now, now, granted, I, I'm not necessarily here to uh, talk only about the beer, but I also think about you. Also, see that in the way he, uh, his interactions uh, in the room, the way he's dressed and stuff, and then there's the songs, which, um, and again, stop me if I, I go too far with this too. Uh, which, when I'm I'm listening to you perform them, I am just laughing and crying at the same time and it's so obvious i think what's going on but it's so ridiculous the way the audience is not necessarily picking up on that who was mm -hmm. in the hotel room right is that a good way to describe that yeah i think that's fair you know the tonal complexity of what's happening in that room is uh is part of what i hope people will enjoy which is you know there are a lot of things going on there are these fanboys <laughs> who have a somewhat um 
vampiric, sycophantic. They want to they want to like suck the energy out of their favorite musician without caring about his own feelings, which is kind of a tender and sad portion of it. Then there is the fact that he is described as this sort of ultimate indie rock star god and when he walks <laughs> in the room he's wearing an oversized target golf shirt and um <laughs> and some cargo shorts um with think, white socks yeah with the white socks which and and the hair which allows you to see a, a different side of this story um and i think that you know if room 104 is about anything it's about accepting uh the paradox of things as they are they are not just one thing they're not just funny or sad or in the case of this episode at times a little scary as to what he might mm-hmm. do to these people in the room um there are there are all those things and i don't try to implicitly control that tone for the audience i just present and let them take it as they take it and what's funny about room 104 is that and particularly an episode like the murderer if you watch it with a group of 10 people it'll play a lot more funny because you're sharing it with people if you watch it alone in the dark by yourself, it will play like a horror episode. So it depends on your context. And, and, and that's it. I, I think like it, in a weird way, it is like a song too, because you have this moment where it's just full, like rocking out where it's really funny. And there's almost like something's going to happen. Yeah. Other moments like uh, the, I'm not describing how it ends, but how it ends. And you're just, wow, I did not, I did not know we were going here with it. And it's very satisfying. Um, also, just real quick, the the lyrics, <laughs> the songs. Uh, I, Cradle me in your loving arms. I it won't be long before I get too big. Uh, I want to <laughs> rip out your beating heart. Hold me steady now, oh mommy. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. How was it writing those lyrics? And because it, it, you set it up as it is like this, like legendary indie guy, like that you would kind of obviously before the internet would be like, did you hear about this guy? Mm-hmm. He's just amazing. Um, and then you hear these lyrics, you're just like, what is going on? I think that, um, you know, especially as it applies to music and it especially applies to cult aspects of things, um, things turn over very quickly from really amazing and cool to, I can't believe I used to listen to that and enjoy that. <laughs> you know? It's an experience we've all had. I mean, the... All right, so you're about my age, right? Like, I say, I say, I remember the Spin Doctors. Was let, come on, time. yeah. So let's let's talk about the Counting Crows for a second. The you Counting and, Crows, and yes. you and I driving around the suburbs of New Orleans, uh, <laughs> listening to the Counting Crows, and it's like the most in-depth, beautiful thing in the world. And then you go to college and you discover what real raw indie music is, and then you make fun of yourself for listening to the Counting Crows. And then you mm-hmm. listen to the Counting Crows five years later, and you're like, oh, I was the same, I'm the same age now as when they were, so now I can identify again. So the, the constant recontextualization <laughs> of what music is and whether it's good or bad is something we're no strangers to. And I think that part of the experience of watching an episode like The Murderer is feeling that paradox inside of the room where these fanboys have this long relationship with it, but you're new to it. And so it's really fun to watch something that people revere where you're kind of like having a very different relationship to it because of your own mm-hmm. context. And uh, that's, I mean, that's just part of the fun of the episode. Uh, no, and I mean, uh, God, I wish I could talk more openly. It's just, it, I, yeah, it got me. It got me good. And I want to talk about another episode real quick in, in, uh, in the season, uh, specifically episode three, who has one of them. I think he's just such an amazing actor, though he's not a wrestler, Dave. Baptista, and it's called Avalanche is the episode. Um, how did that come about? I mean, we're just so lucky to have him. I mean, that's the truth is, you know, this is a 
cheap arts and crafts show. We're not, you know, paying big bucks. And he's a huge movie star. And I think that he really wants to do some more dramatic work. And I think that the way our industry works is they're like, well, you're a wrestler and you did some Marvel movies. So you can do like action or comedy, but that's it, dude. This is where you belong because that's all you're proven in. And so, you know, we gave him a chance to do something different while at the same time he blessed our show with his presence and who he is. And he's, he's an amazingly kind and open person. He's got tremendous depth. And, um, I mean, I wish you could see the dailies cause like every take he has it and brings something new and different and raw. And, um, it's like, one, I think it's one of the most beautiful performances we've had on the show. And I hope that people will see it and I hope that he will get to do more work like this, but because of it, that would be, you know, a dream. And, um, it's, you know, it, the episode really is just him and a bunch of dolls. <laughs> So, uh, no pressure, Dave, but, you know, he carries the whole thing. He really does. Yeah, and I, I mean, uh, I remember him, uh, the Blade Runner movie, he had a small role in that. And these little glimpses when he gets to have these really serious ones, because he just brings so much to that. And I'm not a producer, um, but I, I would love to see him in, like, a romantic comedy. I would love to see him in just something that's really against his type, because he's that good of an actor, I think. Um, so I, I've seen some videos behind the scenes of this, and you guys talk about that there are rules for kind of like what can and can't happen in the room. I wonder if you yep. can explain some of that for me. Sure. You know, we really believe in uh, the power of limits as it applies to creativity. You know, like uh, it's something that we grew up with. I mean, you know, I grew up in the suburbs of Metairie with no connections to the industry, and all I had was my parents' video camera, so I just started making stuff, you know, and and. And the, the limits inspired me in a way. And I never let uh, the fact that I didn't have those other things stop me. Um, and so we self-imposed some limits on Room 104, A, in order to keep it, you know, more modestly priced to keep making it, but B, because they really do inspire you. Um, and one of those is you never get to leave the room. You got to stay in the room. The other early one we set was, you know, you, you don't get more than like three main characters. You can have a couple of extras, you know, but ideally there's just two main characters in the room. And we always knew that those rules, as people say, are meant to be broken, but they were meant to be fought against and pushed against and challenged by the core creative team to get you to tell as many wildly creative stories as you can within those, within those limits. And it, it, I think it works so well because of that. And it's, it's interesting because at a time when we think of like a really well-known anthology or something like Twilight Zone, uh, this in a weird way kind of spins it on its head in a different direction. And I think uh, you were talking earlier about, uh, we were talking earlier about the writing, um, but this the, the style surprised me some of the way there was an episode, I can't remember what season it was, um, with like Luke, Luke Wilson. They're, uh, they're kind of building the hotel and, mm -hmm. and even that still takes place. It just some really inventive ways that sticks to those rules, even though that's not what it's about. And that kind of helps push that story. It's really great. Yeah, it's really fun. We uh, we messed. With, we have a we have some prehistoric stuff in this season without saying too much. Um, and we <laughs> sort of reimagined that, you know, in that time the tectonic plates uh, of the of the world as we know have shifted over time with, <laughs> with continental drifts and whatnot. So we came up with a whole scheme of how that episode could work. 
Oh, that must be so much fun. Um, it's really fun. Where, where did the idea for a hotel room come from specifically? You know, were you sitting in a hotel? Was that is it like that cliche or? No, no. Where where it really came from, you know, is um, this i this this core idea really that uh, we're all a little bit different in in hotel rooms, and we all let this other side of ourselves out. I I just love that, you know, and I. I travel a lot as a musician in my early days, you know, in like indie rock bands. And and I also, um, I just, I love a hotel. I don't know why. I <laughs> always love a hotel room. It's like so fun for me to get out and, and experience something different and the new smells and the, the feelings of history in the room and that ding on the wall. And what could that ding have meant? You know, um, I just, my brain goes to that place. And um you know, coincidentally, by just building one set and being able to shoot in one place, it takes the cost of an average episode of TV down about 75%. And hmm. you can shoot an episode on an average of two and a half days, which where it normally takes about six days to shoot an episode. So that keeps your cost down. And, you know, it's a slightly controversial thing that I like to do, but I believe that art and commerce as they intersect are very important, you know, and my understanding of like, finance and and the the business as it exists has helped to support me creatively as an artist because i accept that if i try to get hbo to give me the normal amount of money to make room 104 they're gonna tell me i'm crazy you can't make a show like that it's too much money it doesn't make sense but if we do it cheaply and i design it that way that's how i get to make four seasons of a show when someone else would have gotten canceled and and that's been really my whole approach which is like just hit singles, man. Don't swing for the fences. You swing for the fences, you're going to wait all day long for the right pitch. You can hit a yeah. single with anything. And then every now and then when you hit a single, there'll be an error, and you'll have an inside-the-park home run. And you won't even know <laughs> why, but it will have happened. And that's, that's the whole approach. <laughs> well, I think you have a couple inside-the-park home runs in this season. And it, I used to direct theater, and uh, part of the uh, thing a mentor taught me was just always try to you know, make sure the choices you're making artistically will – be enough to support what you're doing. And so meaning like, don't make something so radical that it's not going to make money because you'll not work again. You know, I really, I really believe in that. You know, I try to make projects and look, I, I fully accept that other people have other ideologies and those work for them, you know, but for me, I like to make a piece of art where I know that in the worst case scenario, it still holds its value and quote unquote makes its money back. Um, which is harder to discern these days in the age of streaming and with a box office and all that shit. But, but in general, as long as you can provide your value to people, they'll keep calling you. And like, I'm, I'm, I'm still here. You know, I have yet, <laughs> I have yet to crack ten million dollars at the global box office, but I'm still here. And that is, <laughs> that is how I have designed my career. You're closer to me to that than me. I'll, I'll, I'll leave it All at right, that. Fair enough. When you go to hotels now and you stay at them, is it a different experience after doing four seasons of a show that takes place in a hotel room? Well, you're I, like, oh, I, I wonder what time Yeah, yeah. I try not to stay in, in, in hotels that look like room 104 because uh, I'm <laughs> well aware of what of the things that can occur there. But the truth I is... I say which... I think all of us have stayed at that hotel room. Totally. That's the other thing. I mean, yeah. like, by the way, that room is not... It's not a dump. It's just sort of average and boring, you know? 
And mm-hmm. um, I would have killed to stay in a room like that when I was on tour with bands. Like we, that was like a treat we would get once every two weeks, you know. Um, <laughs> really? Oh God, we were, we would just sleep on people's floors and sleep in the van, and then and then every now and then you get to the point where you're like, I need a shower. So we <laughs> we, we buy the 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 forty nine ninety nine Motel Six and and do that, you know. But usually split it with another band, basically. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but um, you know, the truth is though, even if as you stay in like nicer hotels, I mean, I'll never forget when I was like, I think I was like third in my early thirties. The first time ever I stayed at the Four Seasons because I was working with Fox Searchlight on my first studio movie, Cyrus, and they sent me down for press and they put me up in the Four Seasons. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I got there. I called in for an early check-in so I could like juice up on the hotel and get my time. I got in a robe. I broke into the <laughs> mini bar and it was like noon. And then literally as I'm sitting there relaxing, Someone opens the door, I hear the key card, and this guy in his like mid-60s in a suit just walks in, he's on his cell phone, yelling at some poor assistant or underling on the phone, and he doesn't even see me there. And I'm like, uh, when am I going to announce my presence to this person, <laughs> and how am I going to do it in a way that doesn't scare the shit out of him? And um, he just kind of went on for about a minute, and then eventually just like turned and looked at me. And it was like he was looking at like an alien, like he couldn't quite process <laughs> that there was this other person in his room. And I was just, I kind of like saved us both. I was just like, I'll call the front desk. We'll figure this out. And of course, they had double booked the room. And I remember thinking to myself, this is at once so strange, but I can't believe this doesn't actually happen more often. You think it might? Yeah, I, I've never had someone else be a member, but I've gone into a room, checked in, opened the door, and it's filled with someone else's stuff. And you're like, there's something, something off about this. Something amiss here. Yeah. <laughs> Something's awry. Yeah. And it turns into a game of Clue. Now, um, uh, the other thing is, um, I'm wondering as you've cu- kind of coming through a fourth season of this, are there things about the shows or episodes that have made you rethink, um, maybe another way of saying this, is there a, a, um, a change of perspective as you watch a completed episode from the time you, you thought of the idea? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think that it's fair to say that because we make episodes so quickly and we use our instincts and we don't, it's not an intellectual process, right? It's an instinctual process. It is often that the episode ends up either feeling very different or being about something different than when it started. Um, That's not uncommon for, I would say, art in general. But it, it happens more often in Room 104 because of the, um, the, the lightning pace with which we approach it. And we, and we do take big swings. And that means that sometimes we are cleaning things up in editorial or changing things around because we say, oh, my God, that didn't work as well as we thought it would. And now we have to fix it. And, you know, look, I think the, the Avalanche episode is a perfect example of that. I wrote that and I was like, I don't know how the hell we're going to make this visually interesting. But here it is. And then I gave it to Ross Partridge, who's one of my close collaborators to direct. And he came up with all these interesting visual cues by like projecting their images on the wall and all those little cutaways you hear of like, you know, the bell and the ropes and the ring. And he added all of these things because he knew we were going to need extras. So it ended up being much more um, visually erratic than I thought it would be. And I love it because of that, you know. Um, so you get a lot of those surprises and then part of that's just the essence of, 
deeply collaborating with people. You know, I cannot say enough that like when you watch a show like Mad Men, that's Matthew Weiner. He authors that show. He's on every episode. There are episodic directors there, but Matthew is the author, right? I am not the author of Room 104. I am the nice, supportive uncle who brings people into the room <laughs> and says, what do you want to do or what are you good at? And let me help you get it there so you can do your thing. And I think ultimately that's what makes the show uh, not get stale, I guess. I was going to say, are there things that don't – like ideas that are like too much even for Room 104? Because it, it does seem to have – uh, themes from cannibalism to like rekindling romance to yeah. all these things. Is there topics you're like, ah, that's too much for this? There's no episode that we idea that we shied away with because it was too much. I think we broke through the ceiling with the very sweet and endearing male intimacy episode of the two gentlemen <laughs> who eat each other's penises. Um, <laughs> I is, like how you refer to it as the male intimacy. Yeah, episode. ultimately. It's ultimately a story about about human rights and your ability to be who you want to be. Um, <laughs> once, really we cracked, once we cracked through that, we really, uh, I, I think we had nothing to fear after that. That, that removed it. The name of our podcast is called I'm So Obsessed. And Mark, I'm wondering, what are you currently so obsessed with? Oh, God. Well, I'm obsessed with off-the-grid living. Um, I watched this sweet reality show called Alone that's shot in Canada about these people. It's almost like Canadian Survivor. People are sent off into the woods with 10 items to survive as long as they can, and they have to film themselves, and no one's out there with them. And just the purity of how simple their lives are is so attractive to me right now. The amount of time they spend slowly fishing, cleaning a fish, building a fire with like the complexity of pretty much everyone's lives who lives in modern society. But I can only speak to my own existence of being husband, father, head of company, brother, trying to be a good friend, good uncle, good son, all this. It's so, I feel like I'm juggling so much that the absolute simple survivalist lifestyle is really appealing to me right now <laughs> i say you do so much how if when someone asks you what you do what is your answer um i'm ruthlessly efficient with my time i'm usually doing two things at once uh like for most of this day when i'm talking about room 104 i'm like either getting my exercise in at the same time or also cooking lunch for the kids while we're out here. See, on are, are you, are you cooking right now? I already cooked. Lunch is already done. <laughs> lunch is already good. Um, but, uh, but I, you know, I'd be lying if I didn't say a couple of things happen while we're on the phone. Um, right. so that's a part of it. And, um, and then I've gotten really good at, at figuring out how to delegate authority. You know, once we started our company, you know, about 10 years ago, I quickly learned that you don't have to do everything in order for things to be good. And that, the key to life for me is identifying the things that you are uniquely qualified to do extremely well. Only do those things. The other things that are a wash as to whether you could do it well or, or someone who works for you or with you or alongside you could do, pass those away and give someone else a chance to excel at them. And when once I started doing that, I got a lot happier. It is something you learn and it's a strength to be able to do that, which I think a lot of people don't always learn. Um, 
when you and your brother were first starting out, your films were part of a movement called Mumblecore. What does that term mean to you today? It doesn't mean much, and it never really meant that much to me. What I loved about it is that I was a 27-year-old filmmaker who no one had heard of, and the New York Times was writing stories about me, and I was they could call me whatever the hell they wanted to call me because <laughs> it was helping my career. Um, I, I think that what they were struggling to identify was we were a new wave of micro-budget filmmakers that the technology had allowed uh, us to become because independent filmmakers normally needed a minimum of like $10,000 to make an independent film because they were shooting on film and processing it and renting that gear. But these new cheap digital video cameras came out that ran at film frame rates and allowed us to make stuff cheaply. Just as in the early 90s, this wonderful realm of like shoegazing, indie, emo, lo-fi music happened once people could record good sounding records at home. So I just happened to be at the right place at the right time when the technology scooped me up. And that's really all it was. I can wrap it up with a thing called pick one where I give you a couple things to choose and you pick one. It doesn't mean one's better than the other. Got you it. can talk it out. So the first one is New Orleans or LA? LA. Really? Oh yeah. All right. Next one. Acting, directing, or writing? Writing. I can stay home. I love it too much. It's the best. <laughs> um, all right. The next one is the musician Graham Husker or the band Volcano. I'm still excited. Musician Graham Husker. In the end. Re yeah, the deep amount, the deep amount of pain and loss that I infused into Graham Husker, and the comedy involved in it is—it's ultimately just a more evolved version of what I wanted Volcano still excited to be, but I was too young to execute. Without the, well, we can't say without other things happening. Um, yep. The next one is um, Bombshell or The Morning Show. Oh man, that is not, really not about tough. which one's the best. I know. I just got to choose yeah. one. I'm going to choose the morning show because it continue. I doubt that there's going to be bombshell too, but I think there will well, we, be a we morning show too. So. Yeah. Um, and the last one I have for you is the Baldwin brothers, the Hemsworth brothers, the Duffer brothers, the Russo brothers, or the Duplass brothers. Um, I'm going to go with the Duplass brothers, and the reason is because it is. Um, it's a changing thing right now, and it's very on top of mind. Like Jay and I used to be this impenetrable, codependent artistic duo, and no one else was allowed inside of that bubble <laughs> by our design. And it was beautiful, but life has changed, and we have sort of consciously uncoupled a little bit while we still run our company. We <laughs> we do other things with other people now, and um, and so. Duplass Brothers is very interesting to me. It's a, it's in transition right now. You know, we are we are still a unit, but we are not what we once were in a good way, but also in a sad way. You know, that's the end of an era. Um, so it's kind of an interesting time at the company right now. I want to thank Mark for chatting with me, and I want to thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this interview, take a moment and subscribe to I'm So Obsessed on your favorite podcast app. And if you really like the episode, why not give us a rating? We'd really appreciate it. And until next week, take care. <laughs>